1: From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 10, Episode 2. This week's episode was titled A Slippery Slope, which was a phrase coined by Allison Clayton when she was explaining how the law related to the tactics of Detective Wayman Allen as he was interviewing Jennifer Jeff Lee at 15 years old with no parent or attorney present. Uh, We've got a lot of questions from all of you, so we're going to get right into it. Uh, Zach is here, much like last week. Hey, hey. And unlike last week, Mike Bussing is back in the studio. He's back with us again. Hey, hey.
2: Okay, our first question comes from Allison. She writes, just to clarify, did Detective Allen question Jennifer at the police station or a separate location? Which location did Jackie drive to? Also, is there any law that requires the police to inform a minor's parent the location of the minor? Uh, there, so to answer the first question,
1: Detective Allen had Jennifer at, at the police station. It sounds like they weren't even in like an interview room. Like they were, uh, you know, what, I have to go back and listen. we'll hear in this week's episode, they may have started in an interview room. I know for sure when they took her final statement, when he dictated it down, you know, reduce it down to writing. They were just sitting at his desk. I kind of feel like in reading the documents. And again, this will get clarified this weekend on Sunday's episode that they were sitting at his desk the whole time. And that could just be because I'm as I mentioned in the episode, the the manipulation that went on during that you know i'm reading in the the pre trial testimony that you know the the prosecutor's asking him well did you mistreat her while she was there and and he went on to say no no we were you know everything was great i i bought her a candy bar we split and this has been i've I've been corrected by many people that are not from the midwest it is not reese's pieces it is reese's pieces uh, apparently that's a, it's a big deal the way that I, okay. <laughs> yeah. it's several, you'd be shocked how many people wrote in to correct me
2: on that. Um, but yeah, that, that, that process of splitting the, <laughs> I almost had to stop here and be like, what are you even talking about?
1: <laughs> and then you remember that you didn't listen to the episode. I didn't listen, but <laughs> I get it now.
2: I'm assuming, I'm assuming this is the candy that the police gave Jennifer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, like he's explaining
1: that this is, this is proof he didn't mistreat her because he he bought her he bought her candy and shared candy with her. But as I'm reading it, so the whole situation, Wayman Allen is so full of shit through all of this. So compare what he says he knows to the way he's treating Jennifer. He says the entire reason he wants to question her is because her statements don't line up with the other witnesses' statements, and. Eva Mondragon told him that Jennifer asked her to lie for her. So, this is, if true, she is very clearly a suspect, like the prime suspect. He thinks when he brought her in, I believe that he thought she did it when he brought her in. So, and then compare that to the way he's treating her. Sit with me, let me get you a sprite. And then again, I think I believe that the act of sharing the candy even was was a tactic that it was manipulation. It's something where it kind of creates this bond. Instead of being like, "Here, you want a candy bar?" It's let's sit here together and let's eat these Reese's pieces together. You know, we'll we'll share them while we're just
3: chatting. I thought it was strange that he didn't think. Well, according to him, he didn't think she was a suspect until the fourth version. The fourth version of the story. Right. So so, how does that really play in? Like, he's going to listen to her three other times and say she's a witness, and then all of a sudden, even if he knows that those are fake, all of a sudden he's just going to believe this fourth one, right? That
1: was a and and as I I kind of preluded this in last week's follow up, right? The whole bullshit pie reference. That that's what it is. Her statement that you're going to hear this weekend. It's bullshit. He he admits on the stand he's feeding her information, and he says like the way he words it is she gave me another version that reconciled what i had just told her huh. so so in his statement again he doesn't realize what he's saying and her defense attorney sure as shit didn't realize what what she was what he was saying but that's what he's saying when when he says well she gave me a story and i told her that doesn't match up with what these two people said so this is what these two people said and then she told me a story that reconciled them So we already know whatever story she ends up with at the end, we already know how she's reacting to this questioning. Mm -hmm. She's taking the information he's giving her and then she's creating a narrative from that in order to, which is very, it's classic behavior when it comes, is how false, false confessions happen. Is, you know, especially a juvenile suspect will, will say whatever they need to say in order to to please the person questioning them. They they feel like if we just satisfy them then this will be over. And that's exactly what she's doing is exactly what he admitted to. Uh regarding the rest of that as far as where they were, so they're at the police station, they're at a police station. I haven't gotten through all of the police reports yet to figure out exactly uh where Jackie went to, but it sounds to me based on what she said uh in our interview that Jackie did actually go to the correct station looking for them, but didn't think it was the right station because it wasn't the address on his card or something like that. But I'm not sure about that. The reason I say this is because she's, she made it sound like she went to the same place that she had gone to the night before. And from the police record, it looks like she was, Jennifer was interviewed at the same place both days. So I, I think she went to the same place as far as the, the police having a requirement to tell you where they're at with your child. No, as far as I know, there's nothing specifically that says that it says that you're supposed to notify them once they become a suspect, which, as you pointed out, Zach, it's kind of ridiculous to believe that he didn't think she was a suspect mm-hmm. until she gave that her last version of events. when everything he's saying says I'm interviewing her because she's a suspect, but he couldn't say she was a suspect because then he would have that duty to inform her parents.
2: Lauren says, was it department policy to record or tape conversations? I'm a little surprised that when they got into Jennifer's fourth story about being in the apartment, they didn't at least turn some sort of recording device on. I'm still working on that. I've gone through a lot of the trial testimony from the
1: officers and haven't found it, it. It's another frustrating thing. I thought that would be the easiest place to find that the answer to that question, because you would assume that the defense attorney in cross-examination would say, why didn't you record this? Don't you usually record it? And it? We see it in cases all the time. You do have access to recording equipment, right? Why didn't you use it? And I haven't found that question asked yet. So the answer that I'm going to give you is just is is an educated guess. I'm assuming in 1996 that the Houston Homicide Division absolutely had access to recording equipment. And again, I think that speaks to the fact that it wasn't recorded, even when it was reduced to writing. I think that speaks to the dishonesty of Wayman Allen in all of this. So I didn't really hammer on it in the episode because the episode was so long anyway this week, but he says in his, in his testimony that the process of of putting that statement into writing was simply Jennifer retelling him what she had told him before, along with some prompts from him just saying, okay, then what happened next is, is what he says happened. Now, what we know based on his own timeline is that that process took two hours, almost exactly two hours from the time she started retelling her previous story till the time when she finished telling her story was two hours. I know because in this week's episode, you're going to hear that interview or you're going to hear that statement read by a voice actress that it takes 15, let what 13 and a half minutes. The second statement. Yeah. It takes 13 and a half minutes to say those words. And it took him two hours to get that information out of her. And so that's why it's not, if there was recording equipment available, that's why it wasn't recorded, because once you record it, it's in evidence. It's part of discovery. It's Brady material has to be turned over. So if you're prompting her and feeding her information and, and and leading her and getting her to say what you want, you don't you don't want any of that documented anywhere. So the way you do that is you don't record it. You type the statement as they're saying it, but then you just leave out the stuff you don't want in there. Do you
3: think that's also part of why they were at his desk? And not in a like a a statement room because of the recording. Like maybe if they're at his desk, there's no recording equipment, right? And he's purposely doing that.
1: I absolutely think that's the case. I think that this what they could have done, what they should have done, is put her in an an interrogation room that, again, in 1996 in a city like Houston, had to have cameras and audio recording equipment. And they could have just flipped the camera and the recorder on and just had the conversation. Let her give her statement, but I suspect that would have been a cluster because she didn't know what the hell happened. I again, you know, I, I'm not saying I'm not open minded in this case, but I I don't believe anything happened the way that 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 the prosecution presented this case. And personally, at this point, I don't believe that Jennifer knows anything about what happened, and it's very evident in her statements that she doesn't actually know what happened. Um, but that's why it was done the way it was because they could. Yeah, if they put her in there and just recorded it, then he wouldn't have been able to be like, oh, no, but what about this? And, you know, you're going to have to explain this Mm -hmm. because Jennifer has on record, as I mentioned last week, that she's, you know, she can't really talk to me about the case right now. But in previous interviews, she's done on the case. And she said they kept telling me that, you know, her story is built upon the police saying, well, your fingerprints were found here. so. Why would you touch that? And then she adds into her narrative her touching this thing. Your your blood was found here or, or you know, the, your your DNA was found here. Why were you? So then she adds in, you know, that information. And then, as you know, spoiler alert, as it turns out, neither her fingerprints nor her DNA was found anywhere on the crime scene. But she was told that it was. So then they end up with this statement where they're able to go to trial and say look look at all the details of this scene that she knows how would she know that the purse was on the table if she wasn't there how would she know that the body was positioned like this if she wasn't there it's because they told her he admits that they told her all that so but but it looks on the surface as though she has all this this uh, guilty knowledge of the crime scene because he's feeding it to her or at least we can assume that it's all you know that's what she's saying so it's all allegedly that's what's happened, but but we can certainly, you know, it's not unreasonable to infer that that's what happened when it takes two hours to give a 15-minute statement and they chose not to record any of it.
0: Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free.
1: See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts.
0: O, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.
2: Alexis says, it seems like the police officer was able to initially question Jennifer without parental consent because she was just a witness and not yet a suspect. But is it actually legal without parental consent to pick up and transport a minor and not disclose the location when a minor is just a witness and not a suspect or in actual police custody? Yeah, it is legal for them to do it. And that was, so Zach, as a parent,
1: did you know any of this and how shocked were you to find out if you didn't?
3: So, I I did know some of this just because I've I've had some legal run-ins when I was younger mm-hmm. that that I've definitely been picked up by police and transported to a police station and talked to before your parents knew before my parents knew. So I mean it, it's it's not awesome you know by any means right? But I, I knew that that was a possibility.
1: And you think doing what I do, I would know this, mm-hmm. but I had no idea. So in this case, we're talking about a fifteen-year-old, which is bad enough. But my first thought was, Parker or Maddox, our boys are almost the exact same age, yep. 10 years old. That These laws don't just apply to 15-year-olds. They also apply to my 10-year-old. And I can't even imagine, and, and as I mentioned in the episode, I teach my kids all the time, not not to be disrespectful to police, but that if you're ever questioned by the police for any reason about anything, whether you're a witness, they just have some questions, or a suspect, you tell them you can be respectful and say i'm sorry but i do not speak to the police unless i have my father and an attorney with me i will not answer any questions unless i have my father and an attorney with me however parker is 10 yeah and parker you know will tell me he understands that but i guarantee you that if a cop grabs him and says hey i want to talk to you you need to listen to me because i'm a cop uh-huh. That's going to go right out the window. Yep. He'll go right there with them and he'll say whatever they want you to say, or whatever they want him to say.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And it, it, it's scary and it's, it's, it's frustrating. But I mean, I really was completely ignorant to the, I always assumed even when I took this case initially, I thought, well, they, I don't know how this got through. You can't take in question a 15 year old without a parent present. That's illegal. Mm-hmm. Turns out. No, it's not. I mean, just, just to
3: go in my story and I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's embarrassing, but you know, I got me and a good friend of mine got arrested for shoplifting when we were younger Uh and you know, we were picked up, we were questioned in the police car. We were taken to the police station and questioned about it before our parents were ever, you know, how old were you? 13. Okay. So, I mean, you know, so it doesn't, it wasn't a shock to me, I guess, because I had experienced it myself. Sure.
1: Yeah. I just, uh, I've always thought with all, you know, my kids growing up that they would be safe from the police. But yeah, the fact that, they can literally grab a a kid. They a cop. I mean, he's not here right now. He's at school. But my ten year old Parker could be outside riding his bike,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and a police officer can pull up and say, "I need to talk to you." Put him in his car and drive away with him, and not tell me anything. I mean, first of all, just think of the panic just with that alone. Oh, that's terrifying. Your kid's gone. You know, and I don't live in a neighborhood like you do. There's no witnesses here. Yeah, we're in the middle of nowhere. I would just think that he was you know abducted, lost in a
2: cornfield, or. You know, fell in a pond somewhere. Mary says, what's the point in having a law that requires a parent to be notified, but when they don't, nothing happens to the officer who doesn't do what he's supposed to do? This enrages me. Oh, it
1: enrages me, too. I was, so when I called Allison, I was, she was actually on vacation. I, I know you could probably tell it was a bad phone connection, but I was just like, this is, this is insane. There has to be a law against this. And uh, and I called her and she told me to give her a little bit to, you know, research the exact case. She told me the answer, but said she needed to find the case law to, to, to be able to speak on it. And, and, and the fact that there, yes, there is a law in the books. And and so, you know, here's full transparency. As I'm putting the episode together, going, my process is, you know, re- the, the, the process of building these episodes is part of my investigation. Because it forces me to look very closely you know, in order to build, say, a story arc for an episode, by doing that, I've got to like piece together timelines and different elements of the case and see how they fit together. And a lot of times, it's during that process is when I discover things. So, in it, in this case, it was so. The hamburger incident was huge. So, so I had I had read, I had talked to Allison some about it, and then you know, and, and she'd already told me that no, they can question them as long as they're not suspects. And so then I continue to to read on. And I, I'm reviewing my interview with Jackie Jeffley, and she says, you know, having, again, she's never seen any of this testimony at that point. She had no idea where anything fell on the timeline. She's like, yeah, I got to talk to her. And she says, "Why well, I was talking to her. She said she had just eaten a hamburger. And then I'm going through, you know, as I'm trying to parallel the days with the with Detective Allen, I'm going through his testimony, and and I see where in the timeline that they – She's a suspect. She's in custody. She gets her magistrate warnings. And then on the way back, gets a burger, eats a burger at his desk as they're starting to do the the interview. And it was like, at that moment, I thought we got him. I mean, I literally was like, holy shit. It's the second episode. And we've already found a huge breakthrough in the case, which I do think it is a big breakthrough in the case, by the way. I mean, it's not as it turns out, as I said, it's not going to matter legally, probably. But it was a breakthrough. Like now we know as far as the, the crookedness of this detective that he was talking to Jennifer's mother on the phone when during the time period when he was supposed to be contacting her. And he can't make the argument that, oh, I, I couldn't find her because she was on the phone with him. So that was that was a big deal. And the bigger deal to me is and the part that maybe maybe Ken you used later, probably not at this point, is the fact that he's saying I never told her she could go home when she was done. And Jennifer has said again in other interviews, they told me if I gave this, if I signed whatever thing he wrote, they told me that if I signed it, I could go home. And then to hear Jackie tell the story that, you know, they're sitting, he says they're sitting next to each other on the desk, or at the desk. He's, uh, Jackie's able to talk to Jennifer. And then the detective takes the phone from Jennifer. She's still sitting two feet away from him. And he says, we're about to wrap things up here, and then I'll bring her home. Like that That's critically important. It's, it's very important in any case where there could be a false confession to understand all of these circumstances and what coercion went on. And you have his word against Jennifer's saying, I never told her she could go home. And she's saying, he did tell me I could go home. And then we find out from Jackie that, well, he definitely told me she could go home while she was sitting right there.
3: Maybe I missed it, but was there ever a point in his testimony where he said that he had talked to Jackie?
1: No. Well, I shouldn't say that because we haven't gotten into. I haven't even gotten into his cross examination, and it's because it's weird in the transcripts. Because I'm
3: curious to, to to see what he says, whether he said that he had tried to contact her or not tried to contact right. her.
1: So for this episode, I got I just went as far as his direct examination in the pretrial hearing, which was you know him saying he was asked what what was the process walk me through the entire day of how you got this incriminating statement and in that retelling he never once says anything about a single phone call ever what was weird about it and and again the episode was already an hour long and i had you know i, I just mike was frankly mike was gone that was that had to be the end of it but it's also weird so that's like volume 3 of the transcripts which is all pre like the, the guilt and innocent phase starts in volume six uh, for anybody who reads trial transcripts, you know how the volumes work. So like his direct examination in this pretrial hearing is in volume three and then the net or volume two. And then the next volume is jury voir dire. And then the next volume is something completely different. And then somewhere down in volume four or six, there's a cross examination of him. And I don't, and I haven't pieced together. I can't figure out why it, why it happened on a different day? Why it happened after jury? Or if it's, so I, I've got. That's just something that I've got to piece together. So I can't say no. He never said it because I am assuming that that Jennifer's defense attorney did ask that question about any calls during cross examination, and I just haven't gotten to it yet.
0: Waiting on a tax return. Hopefully, it ends up in your hands.
2: Lisa says, I'm interested in your assessment that the killer was an older person and perhaps more experienced. If you aren't saying that, I certainly don't want to put words in your mouth. It just seems like that to me. From my perspective, this was a crime of opportunity. Either the killer just happened upon Catalina, saw she was older, and thought they could easily overtake her, or the killer knew Catalina just enough to know she was older, trusting, and lived by herself. It doesn't sound like the killer brought a weapon with them. This attack was done in the morning or the day, correct? I'm certainly not saying Jennifer is guilty, not at all. But at first blush, it seems like a younger, less experienced person to me. So
1: Zach and I did talk a little bit about this last week, and, and Zach, I think you could say something like, "For you know, it just doesn't seem like something a 15 year old girl uh-huh. could do." And I say, you know, 15, and I and I, so I think where this coming from. But I said, not, a, I don't think a 15 year old anybody could do this. So, so, so let me let me clarify from my perspective, you know, is you know, with me me trying to you know put my own behavioral analysis or profile onto this crime scene. I I guess age is not necessarily the point I was making. I would say not that you're wrong and I'm right Lisa, just but from my perspective, I disagree that this would be someone inexperienced. Unplanned? Yes. But so forget forget about age for a minute. What what jumps out to me is the immediacy of the violence so it doesn't matter how old they are this to me is someone who is criminally experienced to the to the point where they have no hesitation this crime scene indicates no hesitation whatsoever no gut check no stopping no trying something else and then resorting to violence this person jumped over that fence immediately attacked her and immediately smashed at least the way I read the crime scene, immediately smashed a planter over her head. And so th- that's someone who is, number one, I think we'll have, I think we're looking for someone who has a violent background, someone who has has committed breaking an entry before, has had involvement in, in crimes like this before. Just because, you know, I don't think we often will see someone who has no history of violence no no criminal history whatsoever committing their very first criminal act and have it be something that is this immediately violent not something that escalated to violence but immediate violence uh and so that's so i i think that we're looking for someone could it be a 15-year-old person i don't think so but it could be uh i m- my guess would be probably early 20s around 20 years old it's someone that's not mature enough to think this through and and realize what a massive risk this was to do this in broad daylight in a place where your only method of egress is out into an area where other apartments can see you they they weren't they weren't mature to that level but they were mature enough that they have they have been involved in enough crimes and they've had enough of a violent past that they had no hesitation whatsoever when committing this
3: You know, that was, she brought up time of day and that's something that I was thinking about is that whoever this individual was, I mean, that's risky. It's, it's nine ish in the morning. Right. I mean, that's, that's very easily to be seen doing any of this. So, I mean, that's a person that has, you know, that is not worried about risk. They're just going in, you know, I I wonder if it's a drug addict or something. You know I mean? There's a, there's a reason they're going in without hesitation.
1: Well, and I think if the police had done, if they had open, went into this investigation with an open mind and not with the blinders on that they did. This profile, well, you know, we're not we're near ready to build a whole profile or to bring a profiler on to to do that for us, um, but just kind of preliminarily looking at it, like, how do you – so what do we know? It's a Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. So a media – and somebody asked a question like, well, the newspaper said 9.45 and Bob said 9. and is, I'm saying about 9. We don't know the exact time. In, in I in and hopefully in my police file, we'll have like dispatch dispatch logs where I'll know the exact times. But it's around nine in the morning. It was around nine when Jennifer got the page when she left, and shortly thereafter this happened. So nine thirty, nine forty five, somewhere around there. But the fact, so let's say nine thirty in the morning on a Tuesday. So immediately you know, okay, well it's not somebody that probably has. A day job. It's probably not somebody who's you know you, you can alibi any younger people with school. You can you can start narrowing things down. Uh, not that it could be a school age person because obviously Jennifer was supposed to be in school but she wasn't. But then also because of where it's at and how quickly it happened and in, in the the blitz style attack, it's got to be somebody that had a reason to be right there. You know, I I, I mean initially right now there's no evidence to indicate that that uh, youngster or KD had anything to do with this. Just to be, just to make that clear, but they would to me these are suspects or persons of interest at the beginning. If I was the the officers, because you know they were right there, they had a reason to be there. They were you know so so they're they're in the vicinity. We, we didn't get into their police records, but we'll get into that later. Like there's there was reasons to suspect them to be possibly involved in this. The fact that they left and wouldn't talk to and, and avoided the police for all that time, you know, there's just a lot going on there. But yeah, I, to to me, if, working at this point just on a very preliminary profile, I would say it was it's somebody probably youngish, late teens, early twenties, someone that has a criminal background, someone that's uh, and, and probably and I'll say this too, multiple someone's I think that has as a criminal background, they have a history of violence. And and also, if we if you track them from that day to now, there will be more incidents of violence, probably very very similar armed robbery and violence things like this, um, or strong armed robberies because this just doesn't come out of nowhere, and it just doesn't fit that profile, which is not you know it's not it's not fact, it's not evidence in the case, but that profile just doesn't fit with a 15 year old girl who's never had any kind of criminal history whatsoever. It comes from, through, besides the things that they've gone through tragedy-wise, for the most part, a, a very stable home. She always had the anchor at home of her mom and her and her, and her sisters that just all of a sudden decides, I'm going to jump over a fence and
2: kill a woman. It, just, it, it doesn't connect with that profile. Lisa says, It's been mentioned that Cantalina may have complained about visitors to Eva's apartment. Do we know if there were lots of visitors and who they were? Do we know who Catalina raised the issue with? Eva herself, the housing management, local authority or council, who? Yeah, we're going to get into
1: this. I will say, yes, it is known that there was a lot of traffic in and out of Eva's apartment and neighbors did have a problem with it. I do not know if Catalina ever complained about it, but based on something other neighbors have said, it was a problem. And also keep in mind, this wasn't like Jennifer and Eva's apartment. This was Eva's apartment. And Jennifer had just been staying there like that, that day or the day before. You know, she, she didn't live there. Yeah. I,
3: I think they mentioned this is maybe like, she'd only been gone like
1: three days. Right. And they lived, so, so her and Kim had stayed at, uh, they bounced around. They said, so they, they, they stayed together with somebody the first night. I think they stayed together with somebody the second night. And then
2: Kim went home and then Jennifer ended up going over to Eva's place that night. Suzanne says, when Jackie found out that Jennifer was outside speaking with the police, why did she drive to the police station to ask that they pick her up rather than just walk over to find Jennifer and speak with the police directly?
1: Well, I I would assume it's because Jennifer wasn't going to listen to her. You know, that's I've never experienced, but I've had, you know, siblings that have had running away incidents with my parents. And, you know, and it was them saying, you're not going anywhere. You're not leaving. And them saying, F you and leaving. And so maybe they, did, she didn't want to have that conversation with them right then. But also keep in mind, you just heard her kind of telling that story. But look at the elements of it. So her sister comes back and says, "I saw Jennifer there. She was talking to police." And then Jackie says she went to the police station to report her, to to report her as a runaway. While she's there, they walk by. Jennifer's already at the station. So I think what may have been left out of that story is, and she did say, I guess that you know she was down there talking to the officers. But I say what may have been left out of that story is the fact that Jennifer was already gone with the police by
2: that time, because we know by the time Jackie gets the police station, Jennifer's there. Kelly says, "Can Jennifer's use of the neighbor's phone be confirmed by the neighbor?" Yes, uh, it, it can, and I'm hoping that it will be directly. I know.
1: It didn't come across real clear in the episode when I said, knowing what I know, I think is the way I worded it on the podcast. I know that, yes, absolutely. The woman whose apartment Jennifer went to to use the phone has verified and confirmed that. And I also know that the person she called has verified and confirmed that. But I haven't spoken to them directly. Uh, and so that's one of the things I'm, I'm working on as we speak is trying to track them down so I can get them in and get direct statements from them. But I do know that, yes, they have both confirmed that. And, no, it wasn't at trial. They were never called at trial.
2: Lisa says, what was the police response time to the scene? It seems to me that anyone who committed this crime would have blood evidence on their clothes and body. Any of the three upstairs seem to have time to clean up and not Jennifer. I may have missed it, but did anyone else in the complex hear Catalina's scream? As far as response time, I don't know the exact
1: response times yet because again, I, I don't, I, I haven't seen in my scan through the the many pages of police documents a dispatch log, which I specifically requested. So I'm, I'm probably going to, have to make a follow up request for that. But it should have been quick. It's Houston. There's you know, there's police stations everywhere. They're not. It's not far away. And plus, there's you know, patrol officers on officers out on patrol. It shouldn't have been more than a couple of minutes for them to respond once once the police were called. So I, I, I don't know. It, it would seem to me that no, it, you, no one would have time to, If it, it, but again, we're, you know, we're looking at all these stories and none of them are true. So who know You know, so if it's, if the story is say Eva's story or one of her stories is they come down, they hear the screaming, they go outside, they holler, she sees the screen door dangling and she, she's runs to the maintenance office, gets to the maintenance office, the the manager's office and gets the the manager and the maintenance worker when she comes back Jennifer's now there and they jump straight in and they find her dead the the police would have been arriving right behind they'd called the police the police were coming right behind them so no I I mean I mean I guess you could have time you could go up in the apartment and quickly change but in again in that version of events and this is why none of, this is the bullshit pie right so in this version of events this would be an innocent Eva and a guilty Jennifer. Guilty Jennifer goes up to Eva's apartment to change out of her bloody clothes into other clothes and then comes down in different clothes, talks to police, ends up being taken to the police station. So her bloody clothes then are still in Eva's in innocent Eva's apartment but Eva never turns any bloody clothes into the police. The police never find any bloody clothes in her apartment you know so, that, so that it just it doesn't add as far as timing goes, no, I don't really think practically somebody could change. That quickly? And if they did, it would have been easily discovered by police because Eva, certainly, if Jennifer's guilty, isn't sticking up for Jennifer. She's throwing her under the bus. So I'm sure if she went back and found bloody clothes in there, she would turn them right over. And as far as did anyone else hear her scream? What I'll just tell you for right now, because we're going to get into it later, is yes, uh,
2: there was someone else who
1: heard her screaming.
2: Kim says, I know we're going to get into Eva later, but I'm confused as to the relationship between Eva, Jennifer and the two boys. And why Jennifer would lie for her? Well, I mean, from what Jennifer says
1: and the way the scenario looks, if what she's saying is true, is you have a very naive young—you know, she's 15, but is still in the eighth grade. So that, as far as you know, where her maturity level's at. But then also, you just have someone who's who's lived a very sheltered life her whole life. She's not Jennifer is not street smart. She grew up in the country in East Texas and then in Tennessee Colony. Which, as I mentioned, was where Ed was imprisoned for a long time. That's in the middle. You've been there with me, Mike, when we went to go visit Ed to Ed's prison. Yeah. Yeah. It's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, just the middle of nowhere. Uh, And then the fact that, you know, she was raised her whole life as Jehovah's Witness, which, you know, is part of that faith. They kind of keep to themselves. They don't really get outside of their faith. They're not supposed to really have friends that aren't a part of that faith. So she's had a very, 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 sheltered life leading up to this so she has zero street smarts and from her story is that she gets back and that eva tells her that you need to say you were here or we're going to be in danger this is happening very fast right the police are there the ambulance is coming all of this is happening and she says eva tells her tell them you were with me or we're going to be in danger And so she just, okay, well, this is what she told me to say. So I'll say it now. That doesn't mean that's true, but that's what she's saying happened.
3: Well, and I think that goes back to trusting an adult as a, as a child. I mean, she's 15, right? And Eva's early twenties, 24. So, I mean, you're, you're trusting an adult. Now we all know at 24, you're not much of an adult, right?
1: But as a 15 year old, you don't know that as a 15 year old, she's looking at a 24 year old woman with a four year old child. She's Mm -hmm. looking at a mother, Mm -hmm. you know, so as far as where she sees her, as far as you know an authority figure or an adult she's she's looking at a mother mm-hmm. uh and so again, I'm not saying that that's absolutely what happened. I don't know. I have no way of knowing if that happened. however, building on that scenario and with the question of why would she lie for her well that's why she's she's very naive, she has zero street smarts it, she's super young it is, as you pointed out it was an adult. A mother, an adult telling her to say this. You know, and my first thought when I first started reviewing, there's a there's a Crime Watch daily uh, video on this case, which is worth checking out. Just give it a Google. When I watched it and I and I heard all this breakdown, my first thought was, Oh, Eva knows who did it and it's someone dangerous, and she needs to give a statement to to, to, to not incriminate them, to kind of make an excuse for why they didn't know what happened. Um, because they were in the apartment together or whatever they didn't see anything it's just that just kind of was the the thought I get but then after going to the crime scene and seeing the layout and all that, I pictured probably because in the crime watch daily and the in the recreations, they show all this happening like in front of parking spaces when I got to the crime scene and realized it's down like this alley and there's just there's not traffic in and out of there it just i don't I don't necessarily think that that's most likely what happened It very, very what well could be, but definitely not in the top of my list
2: of scenarios or hypothesis. Mary says, was the possible egress for the killer through the front door of Catalina's apartment into a common area? Would it have been the same common area that led to the apartment when Jennifer made her phone call? Uh, first of all,
1: you know, the egress was definitely not out the front door. We know this because the deadbolt was locked from the inside when, when the maintenance guy got there and when police got there. So they went in through the patio and went back out through the patio. Uh, as far as the common area, it, as I said again, it's it's like an alleyway. And again, I, I encourage you to go to our website and look. There's there's a bunch of pictures under the episode one case docs that show exactly what the what the area looked like. But if I can describe it, you know, when you if you jumped over that balcony, you came you you landed on a sidewalk. On the other side of the sidewalk was about ten feet of grass, and then another building. And it's the side of a building where there's no windows facing it, so it's just. It's just this narrow kind of alleyway between buildings, and then if you turned left, you've got maybe a thirty or forty foot walk. You would you would if you jumped over the the patio, you'd walk past the stairs up to Eva's, and the and and then the stairs to the next unit, and and underneath both of those are the doors into the lower units, one of which was was Catalina's, and then you go past the patio over the next unit, and then you're in you're in the you're on the it's not really a parking lot. The main drive just has parking spaces lining, and that's where you'd come out to, which is the path of travel that Jen would have taken to get to the the apartment she went to to make a phone call. It's also the way to get to the manager's office.
3: I'm sure we'll get to that in upcoming episodes, but I didn't realize that the front
2: door was dead bolted shut either, which is I think is huge, yeah, showing that they came back out that screen door. Debbie says, "How can Eva see a screen door dangling from the exterior stairs?" In the crime scene photos, there is a piece of wall in the way for nearly the full length of the stairs. She would likely have to be at or near the bottom step. Also in the crime scene photos, the screen door is not dangling. It is laying flat on the ground. So
1: by the time the crime scene photo is taken, there's been people in and out. Remember, the, the maintenance man jumped over the, the patio and went in to go find Catalina inside different version of events uh don't really know exactly what happened but but it seems very likely that jennifer may have jumped the fence and followed in behind him at that time trying to help um so there's multiple people going through the patio uh that would have knocked it down flat uh as far as how she could see it from da- it dangling you're right if you look and, I, and I, po- I as i mentioned i posted a photo where you can look at the patio from the stairs and yeah you You've got to get down to the last two or three stairs before you can see into the patio. So I'm assuming dangling is the is the word she used would be because what you can see is kind of the 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 outer couple of feet of the patio including the fence. So what I'm assuming is that the fence was maybe or that the uh the door was maybe ripped off and was like leaning on the fence. Um that could be described as as dangling uh from that point unless you know, she went all the way down and walked it, again. It's hard to know because we don't know who's lying. Well, we know everybody's lying at least at some point, but it, we don't even know if that's true. But if it's true, that's what that's what I would assume is she's one on um, you know the the last few steps, and that the screen door was like was ripped off and was like leaning up against the patio
2: fence. Okay, and our last question also comes from Debbie. Which of Jennifer's statements to police is she Jennifer claiming to be accurate? None of
1: them. I mean, plain and simple, not any of them. And that this is a great spot to end because we're going to get into in detail all of her statements on Sunday's episode. But, yeah, I mean, she, you know, she says that her initial statement, she told him what Eva told her to say. And then from there on, she just kept rebuilding narratives based on what the detectives were telling her to say. And and she says that none of them were true. And I believe none of them. again doesn't necessarily mean she wasn't involved. But I don't believe any of her statements were true. But to get all those details, make sure you tune in on Sunday, where we will be going through all of her statements in detail, so you'll be able to understand exactly how she ended up where she's at now. And again, as I mentioned last week, make sure you tune in to True Crime Binge, the episode that just dropped two days ago on Wednesday. I think is really great. It's with me and uh, I had on as a guest Nick from True Crime Garage. Uh, get to know Nick a little bit, some personal stuff that he doesn't like to share that I that I drew out of him during the first part of the interview, and then we spent a solid forty minutes picking apart the Delphi case, and we even plan uh, on the episode plan a trip to go there together to to work on investigating the case even further. Uh, I think it's a really good discussion. If you're if you're as obsessed with the Delphi case as I am, please go check out True Crime Binge episode three with Nick from True Crime Garage. And again, don't forget to tune in on Sunday to get all of the nitty gritty details on Jennifer's statements. where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yomnik, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 per month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com like our facebook page or join in on the conversation on the truth and justice podcast fans page for all of you tweeters you can connect with us on twitter at truth Pod. to follow our personal accounts on social media i can be found at bob ruff truth mike can be found at Murp gaming m-u-r-r-b-g-a-m-i-n-g and zach can be found at z to the q And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. This has been Truth and Justice.
2: I gotta say, hey, hey, I like it more than hey guys. But you said hey, hey, oh. so it's two hey, hey. <laughs> That's four hey's all I together. I like
3: it. I like it. Okay, <laughs> it's obnoxious. It's like silly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just going to the they, ad they know we're silly.